this experience been like for you writing your father's novel? It's been an emotional roller coaster, which I think is a term you used in the first episode. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing to find how I've been able to take my father's story and make it my own. I'm loving these characters and I'm enjoying writing a saga and seeing where it goes and, and seeing how, how things are developing and how the pieces are falling into place. It's a pleasure to be collaborating with him. It's one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. Yeah, it's gratifying, but it's bittersweet because as we have gone through this process, and I think I've said it at least once, that I would love the opportunity to have a conversation with him about this and what his thoughts are and, and maybe some feedback on how he thinks we should be, I, it's a real way you, <laughs> should be moving forward with. I wish he had had the opportunity to edit, as he had said in yeah. his tapes. That would have been a, uh, extraordinary. It would have been. We play the cards we're dealt. Welcome back to Legacy, a unique how-to-write-a-novel tutorial. I'm Helena Drago. This is our last episode for this, our first season. And fittingly, it is our climactic episode because we will be discussing climaxes in a novel. My husband Ty Drago and I will be talking about how to effectively resolve the conflicts in a book. And as always, we will be using Tony's story as an example. So listen in as Ty and I, one last time, talk about novel writing together over a glass of wine. I understand the climax is the resolution of the book, but how do you make a satisfying climax? By establishing whether the protagonist or the antagonist comes out on top. Whose goal is met? Is it your hero or your villain? If that isn't resolved, then it really isn't a climax. But what makes it good? I mean, you can resolve the conflict. I've read many a book where I'm left like, that was a terrible ending. Everything is resolved, but I'm not satisfied with it. Well, generally speaking, if you want to satisfy your readers, the first thing you have to do is make sure you don't have any holes. You have answered all the questions. Because if there's a hole, if there's a, something that isn't explained or something that doesn't make sense or worse, something that feels contrived, then your reader is going to feel cheated and may not really consciously know why. Sometimes it's an error in pacing. When people blow a climax, sometimes it's because, you know, you have a certain pace through, the, through most of the book and then all of a sudden there's this huge explosive thing that seems out of place that happens and people go, whoa, wait, where'd that come from? And they're thrown. It's, it's all about maintaining that, that suspension of disbelief. The climax has to be convincing. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not satisfied with that, <laughs> with that answer. Uh, but okay, well, maybe we'll dig out more as we talk about it. All right, let's see if we can work through it. Let's go to Tony's tapes, and maybe that will help clarify what a good climax is. After thanking the Don, John left with Ricardo. They climbed aboard a small horse-drawn cart and left the premises. They proceeded down a little-used lane to an area which was heavily weeded. Ricardo said, pick whatever spot you desire. As you can see, this is seldom used. John jumped from the cart 
started walking down the lane, looking left and right, then walked into the weeded area very carefully and stood on a spot, turned to Ricardo and said, this will fit my needs, and then walked back to the park. It was getting on to dusk. They first took him Carlos home, and he asked them to continue on for a couple of hundred feet while he looked over the area, and Ricardo did that. On the way back to the Don's property, Ricardo said, remember, this is not America, this is Sicily, and here we are dealing with omerta, which is the code of silence. Even if you are seen, they will not report you to the police. They will understand that this is a family matter and they would have to handle this themselves. And you will be under the Don's protection until you leave this country. So no one would dare say a word until after you're gone. John nodded his head and said, that simplifies things. It might be good if the Donatelli family in Sicily understood why this has happened. Ricardo said, everything will be available to you by tomorrow afternoon. The following afternoon, they went back to the chosen site and the two men watched as John carefully removed layers of topsoil with the weeds still intact and moved it onto the lane and continued to do so until he had the five to six foot of depth that he wanted and then covered it with a canvas that he had asked for. They then proceeded to Enna. What you just heard was the last of the Dreo tapes. It just stops. I don't have the climax. I have the building up to the climax. This is what I know. Late in the tapes, my father introduces a fourth brother that heretofore had never been mentioned in any of the tapes I have. His name was Carlo. It's possible that in tape one, we meet Carlo. I have no way of knowing that. Because you don't have tape one I either. don't have tape one either. So I don't know why Carlo would not have come with the other three brothers. In my father's story, Carlo turns out to be a bit of a jerk. At the end of my father's tapes, it is revealed to John that Carlo, back in Sicily, all the money that the three brothers, that John and Peter and Angela, have been sending back to Sicily for their mother, Carlo has been pocketing. Their mother's been living in squalor, and Carlo has been telling her that her sons don't love her, and she died believing that. John has returned to Sicily with the intentions of murdering his brother Carlo. In anger and revenge. In ice-cold revenge. And the clip is about him picking the spot and digging the grave where Carlo's body is going to go. Buried in obscurity, not in hollow ground. And so your father intended that to be the climax. He's going to kill somebody that we, the reader, have never met. You're not invested in this character. In my opinion, it is a, an example of a climax that would be unsatisfying. My father sets it up a little bit earlier in the book. Carlo suddenly appears in Philadelphia on the brothers' doorsteps, basically. And then Peter discovers that Carlo came to America illegally because he got a girl in Sicily pregnant, and he ran from her father. And Peter says, listen, you're going to be a man, you're going to go back there, you're going to marry the girl. He basically puts Carlo on a boat and sends him home. It's some years later when they discover that A, their mother's dead, and B, Carlo has been lying to her, has taken all the money that they've been sending back, 
and mother died thinking her, her sons in America hate her. So that ends the tape. So, so it's you, a digging of that grave. I don't know if John actually does it. Knowing my father and the sensibilities of the tape, I'm guessing John does. Do you think your father had an intention for John to grow and in fact he doesn't do it? I think John grows in the other direction in my father's story. I think John descends into darkness. I think Peter is the one who grows into light. How do you intend to make the climax of this particular story compelling or exciting? or uh, What is the description you would call your climax? It's going to be highly dramatic, tragic. The mistake my father's making, and to be fair to him, I don't have the last tape, so I don't know if he's actually making that mistake. But the mistake he appears to be making is that in your climax, the protagonist and antagonist need to collide in some way. The conflict between the two is paramount. And he's taking Peter out of the equation entirely and sending John, the antagonist, to Sicily alone. Yeah, that is a big mistake. Doesn't work. Based on what I have learned from these past nine tapes is the climax in this particular book needs to be between Peter and John not John and Carlo that we've never heard of before. Yes. I don't know how many spoilers you want. No spoilers, <laughs> okay. but I do want you to describe what you're going to do to make this a good climax, to help our listeners understand how to write an effective climax. The way I'm going to write it in very broad strokes is that John is going to go back to Sicily to do something truly terrible, and Peter is going to learn of it a day late and jump on a boat to pursue him. And the two of them are going to get to Sicily within days of each other and move toward a final confrontation. That's the way I see it happening. Between two brothers who love each other, who probably, out of all the people they love in the world, they love each other the most. Yeah, perhaps. Including the third brother, Angela. Yeah. The way to understand John is everything that John does, every terrible thing he does, for what he interprets to be the good of his family. Peter goes through most of it completely unaware that this is what John has been orchestrating. So we talked about the climax in this book. Mm -hmm. What are climaxes in different genres? In a mystery, in a classic whodunit, the climax, the final climax, because mysteries can have more than one, the final climax is when all the suspects are gathered and the detective says, and the murderer is you. The reveal. The reveal. Is the climax in a mystery. In a romance. In a romance, the climax is generally the point of choice. When one or the other of them, or usually both, make a decision to either unite or reunite. The decision is love has won and they are united together. I have never read a romance where the two main characters are saying, nah, I'm out. True. But at the end of Love Story, one of them died. But it was never about the chase. No, that one was never about the chase. The climax in any book, romances included, is when the conflict is resolved. What makes it exciting? What are they doing? What are the tricks that gets the reader satisfied? To make your climax effective, it has to be a culmination. Can't come out of the blue. It has to be reached by through a series of steps that are established through the pacing of the rest of the story. Everything the story is, everything that the story has been telling, should be a straight line to this climax. It should be something that it was absolutely inevitable. We had to reach this point in some way, shape, or form. 
That doesn't mean there can't be surprises, but there is going to be a moment where the protagonist and antagonist, despite everything that's been happening, are going to come together and the conflict between them will be resolved. And the reader must understand from the beginning. When they read the climax, they say, this is what I've been waiting for. So would you then suggest that a writer needs to understand the ending of its story before it starts its beginning? In most cases, yes. I can't say in all cases because sometimes I don't. And every time I don't, I end up having to go back and change things because I came up with a better ending. It's, it would be a good idea, yes, to be able to say, this is the way I see it ending. Everything I'm writing is going to get me to this point. That is probably the smartest way to write any book. The writer should understand, I'm in this genre, these are my characters. This is what I want to say, which is your climax. And everything else builds to that. So he needs to really think about what is the reader going to walk away with before he even starts. I actually heard in a college creative writing class an interesting metaphor for exactly this. They were comparing it to painting a floor. If you don't paint the doorway, your exit last, you end up with the quite literal painted into a corner. If you think about it that way, you're writing a story, have your exit strategy. You have to paint towards the exit. Mm -hmm. right. That's a good analogy. That's it's a great. good analogy. about your father, Tony. He imagined this 20, how many years? 27. You have shelved it. I wasn't ready. I mean, this isn't an easy book to write. I mean, you'd think, oh, well, sure it is because he gave you an outline. No, there's so much emotion behind this. My emotion. I mean, I'm hearing my father's voice over and over and over again as I'm going through this. I have been bequeathed a very rare opportunity. And until this year, I have not had the wherewithal to even begin to tackle it. And it's only you know, my, my recent retirement that's made it possible. I could not read this book and work a job full time. I couldn't. Why not? Because more than any book I've ever written, it is in my head all the time. It's incredibly distracting. I keep hearing... Don't I know it. <laughs> you are a very distracted individual these days. I hear his voice in my head all the time. All my life, all the books I've written, the voice in my head has been mine. Now for the first time, it's his. And that's, I, I don't really think there are the words to describe how amazing, but jarring that is. Yeah. I just struggle with that he did this, literally dying. Yes. In a bed, or, you know, sometimes he would be down in his family room, or, or he'd go outside and he'd sit. But that's what was his life, those tape recorders. You know, it's funny because I never really thought about it this way, ever, in the 20-some 20, 20 years. You know, when I said that I thought there was at least another tape that got lost, I'm not convinced of that anymore. Yeah. I think maybe he just You're went dying. as far as he could and couldn't go any further. When did he tell you he had tapes? How did you find out about the tapes? I was aware he was making them when he was making them. You were? He told you he was making these tapes? My father did not keep secrets. No, he didn't. <laughs> he, did. he was a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of guy. He really was. Tell me about the conversation you had with him, if you can remember it. Oh, I, got, I bought him for his birthday the tape recorder that he used. It, ostensibly so that he could listen to books on tape. Because it was, the TV tired him. It hurt his eyes. I mean, this was a man on heavy chemo. I bought him a tape recorder and suggested books on tape that he might might appreciate that over. Because he couldn't read, he, he could, couldn't yeah. watch television, because he just wanted to close his eyes. Mm -hmm. And listen. 
Later on, he told me he was using it to get down all of his father's stories. To be honest with you, I had no idea the depth of the novel he was creating. I thought it was more like he was reciting these stories with the intention that someday I would turn them into a book. I did not realize he was actually plotting out something with characters and fictionalizing the whole thing. I think it's an extraordinary thing that late in your life, in your 50s now, yeah. you are finally discovering where your desire to create stories comes from. Yeah, from him. It's the best gift he ever gave me. All his life. Yeah. He was a storyteller. He just never put it into a novel. What is it that made you a writer as opposed to a storyteller? Let me tell you, you're still a storyteller. <laughs> but what, <laughs> <laughs> what made you decide, I can write this? Honest? No, I want to write this. Honestly? Him. I started when I was a kid drawing comic books, and that was my creative outlet that I shared with the kids in the neighborhood. My father would look at these things and I was, I was no graphical artist, but the stories were good. And my father started suggesting to me, instead of drawing pictures, write them out. So I started writing them out. Every word I wrote, he read. Somehow, right now, the stars have aligned where you have decided I can do something with this, my father's story, and do it justice. I think it's remarkable how your father and you are collaborating on this book. How far are you in this book right now? Well over halfway. First draft. On the first draft. Okay. You're chugging along. Oh, I'm chugging nicely, yeah. I'm in a nice clip. I'm at almost 120,000 words. Well, this is the end of our podcast for this season. I hope everybody is chugging along on their own project. But let's take a moment to talk about what is next for us. You want to do the honors? Or shall I? Go ahead. Fire away. Rather than pursue the novel writing angle in season two, we're going to go in a somewhat different direction. A lot of the story that we've been telling is about the immigrant experience. So season two, instead of being legacy, the novel writing experience, is going to be legacy, the immigrant experience. We are going to explore the immigrant experience through interviews with people from various diverse backgrounds who have come into this country. Uh, rich or poor, different countries, different backgrounds, different ways of life. What I like about this, our next season, is it was a very organic thing. As you might remember, listeners, we had said, hey, why don't you interview an immigrant to yeah. help you find your voice? And that led us to other conversations where we realize it is really a um, topical and important conversation about immigrants in this country, how some immigrants are treated differently from other types of immigrants. So we're going to move forward with that. Looking forward to it. I still have a lot of writing to do. Fortunately, I have the climax that eluded my father firmly in mind now. I can finally see where the plot and its many characters are going and how each of them is going to end up. That said, I've been a writer too long to think I'll get from here to there without some surprises. Even with roughly 60% of the novel written, Peter, John, and Angelo may yet have something to show me that I haven't seen so far. Frankly, I hope so. Having a character take you unawares is one of the best things about being a writer. 
So perhaps that right there should be the final tip offered in Legacy's first season. The story is not over until you type the words, The End, and perhaps not even then. Because, as any author will tell you, the first draft is only the beginning. 80% of what I do, after all, is editing, and this book is going to require a lot of polish before it properly shines. But, as important as all that careful rework is, it's just as important not to second-guess yourself too much. There is no author who hasn't looked back at his or her work and thought, this is awful. I should start over, or maybe chuck it all and become a shoe salesman. Before we part ways, me to my writing and hopefully you to yours, I want to take just a moment to thank you all on behalf of Helene and myself for listening to our unique podcast. We've done our best to convey good advice that we hope will help you with the worlds you're creating. Lastly, I want to send every ounce of my gratitude, respect, and eternal love to my father, Tony Drago. Dad, I feel closer to you now than I have in decades, and I miss you all the more for it. This project of ours has been inspiring, rewarding, and yes, a little heartbreaking. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It's been more than a duty to finally tell your story, more than a pleasure. It's been an honor. And now, as would seem fitting, here are my father's last recorded words. Here is Tony Drago being a true author, agonizing over his mistakes, whether real or imagined. I only wish there was some way to tell him, Don't worry, Dad. I've got this. I'll bring the Donatello boys to life. And all of it, I'll do for you. And now, the co-author of this novel, Tony Drago. I am especially dissatisfied with Cape Six Onward when John goes to Sicily. I think it is handled completely wrong and it will have to be completely changed and it will take much more than editing. I have some ideas that I'll roll by you if you're interested, but I think you have enough to go on.